Tonight, two victims who escaped their monstrous captors share their story with us. The report from our chief foreign correspondent, Richard Engel. Well, you can't get Tommy Steele on that, Mary. No, I don't like Tommy Steele, though. You don't like him, but no. you do like pops and dancing, don't you? Oh, yeah. Do you go up into the West End? Twice a week. Well, it must cost you a bit of money going dancing. No, it don't cost me a lot. Well, what do you do for money anyway, for your own needs? Are you working at the moment? No, not at the moment. I was working up to about two weeks ago, but, you know, I didn't like it much there, so I left. Well, how much did you get when you were working? Well, I was earning £7 a week. And how did you spend that £7? I gave my mum two pound out of it, you know, and um, spent the rest on clothes, records and that. What, and makeup and so on? Mm. Well, not not many girls think that way. Incidentally, you, you're not using lipstick, are you? Oh, no, I don't like lipstick. I think it's terrible. Have you got a, a steady boyfriend? No, I don't call him steady, you know. Well, what do your mother and father say about you going out with boys at all? Oh, they don't mind a bit, you know. They like me to have a good time and that. You don't find them too strict? No, up to a certain point, they're strict, but... In what way? Well, they don't like, you know, let me stay all night and things like that, but... What time have you got to be in? About quarter to twelve is latest, you know. But I suppose that if they know where you are, they don't mind? Yeah, because sometimes, like, when I go to parties, I phone them up and I can stay later. In London's East End, Nightbirds is a chronicle of today's permissive youth. Nightbirds is the ultimate trip. The world of the Nightbirds will blow your mind. As the listeners can hear, we've done what any logical person does after a double bill of movies at the Genesis Theatre Whitechapel is we've gone to uh, one of the many fine Bengali, Bengali buffets. Yeah. And avoided eating vast quantities of sweets. And I'm now standing opposite London Hospital, that fine Victorian institution. Now we're, we're standing on... Um, White, is this still Whitechapel High Street here? Yeah. Uh, at the corner of um, 
Balance Road. Balance Road. I'm a street much associated with later criminality, of course. Because, of course, this part of the East End is not just ripper territory, it's cray territory. And uh, there's still a lot of people, particularly around this neck of the woods, who knew the craze quite well, so I think we'll just leave things there, shall we? Yes. I mean, they loved their dear old mum. They did, they did, and they, and they boxed. They boxed a lot. And did I ever tell you I went to, I went to the last ever Cray funeral? <laughs> uh, no. Well, I mean, you know, basically, uh, my late friend Abigail rang me up one morning and said, they're burying Charlie Cray. We need to go and watch this because it's our last chance to do a wet at East End Gangster funeral. So we wandered down to Bethlehem Green Road. We saw all the guys in sharp suits with shaven heads and sunglasses and earpieces. We saw the cortege go past, the black horses with the plumes, the hearse with the glass windows, the flowers saying, we, the wreaths saying we love you. And we followed the cortege to the church and then we went away. And I hope you remembered not to wear white jeans. <laughs> Indeed so. But, uh, no, I mean, it's... You've lived a life for us, Capony, haven't you? Well, yeah, a lot of it's... I mean, that was just... It was important to memorial. I mean, you know, attention, as someone once said, must be paid. You know, that if you don't speak to Lou Reed when you see him in a the theatre, he'll be dead a year later and you'll never have spoken to other people you admired most. If you don't speak to WH Orden in a cafe in, in Oxford, he'll be dead a couple of years' time. You'll always regret you never spoke to him. What I always say is, even if the famous person you really admire tells you to sod off when you say hello. So you have a story about them telling you to sod off. So that was us blundering around the streets at Whitechapel and uh, my colleague Ross Caven. Yes. Hello, again. Well, almost my own manner, of course. Uh, we had such interesting conversations with Bill Fowler and Vic Pratt from BFI Flipside and with Kim Newman uh, we thought for our show in November we'd play them give give them the full airing that they richly deserve so if you listen to our show in September Scala Review this is a bit of a kind of best of but not just a best of it's more of the best <laughs> yes indeed but I mean just to to have another bite of this cherry because it's a couple of weeks now since we uh, spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about Andy Milligan. Yes. Where, I mean, also with a, a view to the fact that, um, you know, we've got our eyes on Flair, the LGBT Film Festival that's coming up in March. March. And there's currently, um, this will go out after it's happened, but there's an LGBT festival in Glasgow at the moment, where, and, I'm, where I'm from in Scotland. Yes, indeed. And there's the uh, young filmmaker, young uh, LGBT queer, LGBTQ. Uh, filmmakers event in Cardiff, Iris. Oh, when's that on? That was a week or two ago. A week or two ago. I mean, so there's quite a few of these LGBT film-based cultural events around the country. And what I wonder, we're not going to talk about this for very long because we're going to have uh, you talking to Kim Newman in a second, but where do you think this overlap, which Kim Newman's about to talk about in the interview we did at Genesis Cinema, is between what's now Art House, which I guess is the Neon Demon, the... Um, the overlap between what constitutes art house and what constitutes 
queer cinema. Well, part and what, of... And what's Andy Milligan's role in that as a kind of progenitor of it? Well, he was a producer of stuff which, in its day, not without reason, was viewed as abject and worthless. And now we're finding what's a rather more nuanced view. Because part of the whole process of queering the culture is looking again at what's considered abject, what's considered outside reasonable discourse. And it means that we go, yeah, Andy Milligan, hmm, well, the body beneath, it has its moments, I guess. Not many. Not many. Nightbirds, on the other hand, genuinely interesting film. Watching it in a space that you assume is inclusive of everybody is to see a 60s sort of exploitation underground film where there's a very nice-looking lady, but the guy looked really nice. And, you know, get get an underground New York gay filmmaker in if you want that. Well, it, it queers heterosexuality. That's what the interesting thing about Nightbirds is, that it brings the queer eye to a straight... Well, a, a straight kink relationship. Um, and it's a very jaundiced eye, which is why it's quite a dark film. And that's really interesting. I mean, it's not that it's particularly good. Good is not a word I'd use about Nightbirds. It's, it's interesting. Absolutely. Um, and part of, part of the reason it's interesting is because it's so problematic. It's the P word. You know the P word's going to come up. Because you can't discuss it without raising issues mm. around who is telling what story about whom. Mm. It's it's all about power, and it, and rightly so when it's a movie about power relationships mm. and about the economic power of the landlord who is paid off in sexual favours. That's what I like about you, Ginger. You've got class. Nightbirds is the kind of film you will see, you must see, again and again. The economic power of the middle-class woman and the, we assume, more or less working-class man. Mm. And yet, it's, it's about sickness and health, it's about need and lack of need. It's all about relativities, and that's why, why it's a fascinating film. Well, we we had a, a very illuminating and uh, very interesting day or two talking to Kim Newman, wandering around yes, Whitechapel, indeed. and talking to uh, Will Fowler and Vic Pratt from BFI, not only about Nightbirds, but about their Flipside series. And uh, here are now two fascinating interviews, I felt, and uh, also some of us doing our flaneur routine which mm -hmm. we love doing you can listen to more of it on music for streets if you go to the beekeepers.com we make sort of special little podcasty versions of us just walking around talking about stuff because we're going to wander around talking anyway so you may as well come with us like this show i mean you know r rather than sit on the phone to each other for two or three hours we may as well broadcast it in south london yes because that's what radio is all about we've suffered for our art and now it's your turn yes hi I'm Ros Caveney and I'm talking to Kim Newman at the Genesis Cinema and we're going to talk about the movie we've just seen which is Andrew Milligan's Nightbirds. I don't think he was ever called Andrew. Oh sorry, Andy, <laughs> well, Andy Milligan's Nightbirds. Uh, I don't know why I said that. And 
uh, his very strange career in movies. Kim, tell us about Andy Milligan. Andy Milligan was a, an odd American auteur, a man of the theatre perhaps, uh, off, 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 off Broadway. A cabaret um, puppeteer. To, to the extent of mostly being based in Staten Island. Um, he was also an exploitation filmmaker in the kind of 42nd Street sense. But he came to Britain in the late 60s and made a bunch of very odd films here, of which uh, Nightbirds, formerly Pigeons, uh, is by a long chalk the oddest. Uh, it's, it's almost a miracle we even have it, um, since it was kind of a lost film uh, until rescued by uh, the Danish filmmaker Nicholas Winding Refn and uh, the BFI's Flipside label um, who turned the, made the last remaining print available as a, uh, a Blu-ray. They actually had to reassemble it, didn't they? Yeah, um, we're not quite sure. Uh, apart from anything else, we're not quite sure if anybody saw this in the first place. So there is no sense of what an original version might have been. Um, yeah, it's glued together from various places. There are certain sound dropouts that are unavoidable as part of the, uh, the restoration process and try and I don't know uh, how much uh, tweaking they have done to uh, to make it resemble uh, a conventional film. Was it even submitted for certification at the time? Not in Britain, no. But I. But then again, most of Milligan's films weren't sh shown here. He made films here that would never have been released in Britain. Um, not because they were particularly extreme, although some of them are quite gruesome. Um, but simply because they were commercially negligible. Milligan seemed to be one of those filmmakers who wasn't particularly influenced by other filmmakers. He seems to have, for instance, set out to imitate Hammer films without ever having watched one. Um, and in this case, it's almost like he literally arrives after, I mean, Smashing Time is the film that kind of ended that swinging London um, vogue by basically sending it up. So it was like, making a serious version of Frankenstein the year after Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Um, and it is sort of segueing into um, a, a kind of grittier, grimmer vision of, of uh, the London experience. I mean, there are very few actual um, you know, exteriors of people having a good time. In fact, there are none. Weirdly enough, for a film called Nightbirds, it has no night scenes. <laughs> It's odd. In a way, it's a psychological horror film. Yeah. Um, but, it's a, it, but it's also um, an off-Broadway play about two people in a room being horrible to each other. Yes. I mean, it's the... the uh, yeah, and, and that as a format. I mean, you can see it at the Edinburgh Festival every year. That somebody yeah. writes this story. I think it's, this has a kind of crude power that you don't often see. I mean, it, I, it is sort of comparable to what... Paul Morrissey was doing uh, in in taking Andy Warhol's films into narrative areas. They also tended to fall into the two people in a room tearing each other up. It's um, also weirdly misogynist. Uh, yeah, but I um, all of Milligan's films are uh, deeply misanthropic, uh, as and misogyny is a part of that. Um, yeah. I, he, I mean, <laughs> he has the stereotypical thing of the horrible mother, although the mother in here isn't particularly bad, but uh, it, 
over and over in Milligan's films, there there are murderous Harridans, uh, and certainly the 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 female protagonist here is very much in in a so she I mean she compares herself to a vampire yes and she and she actually um, is presented as a a monster figure I'd forgotten watching it again how long it takes for her sort of rottenness to become apparent Uh, it's very interesting towards the end of the film he starts shooting her in a very mm. different way uh, with with hollow you know from underneath her eyes look hollow and yeah, no, it, uh, I mean, it, uh, <laughs> there's an artistry here which you don't find in many many of his films. Well, I mean, having in the last few days watched this and and watched his American short, Vapours, which is a, a, a two-hander with chorus set in a gay bathhouse. That time gets the seven up. <laughs> Thanks. Hope you like it. That's the way it sparkles, isn't it? I remember when I was young, I used to hold a bottle right under my nose and let the bubbles tickle me. <laughs> you know, I don't even know your name. My name is Mr. Jack. <laughs> well, mine is, is Thomas. <laughs> Thomas. It's a beautiful name, Thomas. It's a strange feeling that someone's staring at us. When he's, when he's trying to be serious rather than making schlock, he's... His crude melodrama is quite well served by the cam- by, by his quite perverse camera angles. Oh yeah, no, he's an he's an interesting he's, a, he's an interesting character and filmmaker. That said, watching all his films is quite a chore, but I think he wanted it to be. Um, I think that uh, if you read the the biography, his his main subject seems to have been self-loathing, um, and that just comes out in in everything he did. Uh, probably really nakedly in, in this because it's the least mediated by genre conventions. Yeah, um, interesting performances. Yeah, um, for people he picked up on the streets. Yeah, uh, as opposed to yeah, uh, auditioned. Um, he, he apparently bumped into Barry Keller in Soho and asked him if he wanted to be in a film. Um, there may be a certain amount of print the legendary about that. Um, they're both quite skilled performers in a, 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 with a melodramatic register. Uh, it's not subtle by any means, but it is quite effective. And there's a, I think some of the the other performances, the uh, you know the old busker. There, there's a kind of John Waters feel to that. Again, it feels like you know real people being nagged. I get you can tell who was invested in the project because they're the ones who presumably rewrote the dialogue. Um, the shopkeeper speaks as if he were a New York shopkeeper. Um, yeah, and whereas most of the characters have translated their dialogue into British, some of them haven't, so there are a few... Uh, goddams and, and yeah. other expressions that would not have been uh, uh, London at the time. Which is one of the reasons why Mabel is much more real than most of the rest yes, of them. Yes, yeah. Uh, she's clearly um, translated whatever or, or is improvising. Um, but some of the others are clearly speaking American lines. And, and uh, Dee's, Dee's mother, when we eventually meet her, is 
is is talking like no one ever talked yeah, on Earth. Yeah, although D talks like nobody you've ever met. That's I actually, true. I actually quite like that. London is full of people who who have these voices that are just impossible to trace and don't seem to relate to any uh, geographic or social location. But people. Yeah, uh, and she's actually the, making up for a list. Yeah, but there's a yeah there and there are a few other odd things going on there. But she talks very very peculiarly. But real people do as well. Yeah. It's something you don't often see in film. Um. So it was originally going to be called Pigeons because yeah. of the pigeon. Yeah. Uh, also, which gets forgotten about. Yeah, from my, large yeah, of the my, film. and my guess is that's because. Um, filming the way that Milligan did, just any um, work with animals would have, would have blown yeah, uh, several days' worth of takes. Um, yeah, I assume that the reason it's changed, one, is that Pigeons isn't that great a title, but also it has a double meaning in America that it doesn't really have here. Um, that, yeah... Uh, the, you know the, the you know stool pigeons or yeah. the idea of pigeon as a sucker um, is not a pati- particularly uh, a British term, but it's an American one. You know, Daddy, there's a million pigeons waiting to be hooked on new religions from Sweet Charity. Um, so, but then again, yeah, nightbirds doesn't really mean anything either. No. Um, but it, it's slightly more of a come on type expression. It has birds in it, which was a kind of buzzword in 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 you know saucy swinging london type <laughs> movies yeah um the ending is so very strange the implication is that he's just one of a sequence yes I, I, yeah that presumably yeah, yeah. tom the, yeah, the, the the blind guy the, the one man band yeah, is another yeah. vic- is an earlier yeah, victim that's right and she's just going to take it out on everybody yeah uh, i think that's the the implication that's very much in milligan's uh, vision of monstrousness. It does strike me that um, this would almost be happier if it were a gay movie than a, a straight story. Um, there is a sort of sense that it would work equally well um, if uh, the, the monstrous feminine was just a bloke. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I mean, they, which is why, in a way, I, I wanted to talk briefly about vapors. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there you have this. Which are basically two guys picking mm. each other up uh, in a bathhouse, and one of them is, it turns out, actually looking for a replacement son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, again, that's another one of those things that Milligan almost seems to have made it as a, as a kind of art exercise between his, yeah, for the money work. I, again, it had some kind of a release, yeah, but it's not very. Um, yeah, it was shown in sex cinemas. Yes, that's right. But it's not very satisfying as a sex no. film. It's not long enough to be a feature. It's not good enough to be uh, uh, an art drama. But it's kind of an interesting footnote. It's like he invented the DVD extra years before it could have been. Well, quite, yeah. Because there's this very strange, long, Tennessee Williamsy speech about the death of the sun. Yeah, I, I think obviously... Eaten alive by snakes. Yeah, I think obviously Williams w- was a big influence on the, uh, on the whole generations of, of uh, uh, writers and filmmakers. I, I mean, uh, and maybe 
Yeah, the, the, yeah. And Williams was a weird tales contributor. There is a kind of hothouse genre feel to a lot of his work that does feed back into mainstream horror by way of things like uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, um, and some of the more extreme stuff. I mean, this was the same year as Joseph Losey's Boom, um, uh, and. You know, suddenly yeah. last summer had been filmed a bit earlier. Yeah. So yeah, there is there is. And suddenly last summer has yeah. has that 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 weird description of of of, of, of the brother being mm. pecked to death by small boys. Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, it's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, he was willing to go there. Um, well, quite. Not many people were willing to follow him. That's the, the thing. Those weren't the, those weren't the Williams plays that get revived terribly often. But it was a strand there, and it did connect, certainly with Milligan, but probably also with John Waters or Warhol and the, the people who were making, yeah, extreme cinema. Uh, I'm I'm particularly interested in that weird little intersection between art movies and genre films that seemed to be at about this time was at its its height yeah i think i think if you you know look at this back to back with actually i, I was talking earlier about american filmmakers who came to london joseph losey mm -hmm. also did people trapped in houses ripping each other apart films uh, you know the servant or our mother's house jack clayton's film there are several other pictures from this secret ceremony have this sort of feel to them, um, which is, I suppose, zeitgeisty, but it's but it is also, um, I suppose, it expresses a kind of dis you know disenchantment with youth culture, um, at supposedly at the height of uh, its swinging London fashion. Yeah, talk briefly about Flipside and uh, and, and the project. Um, well, uh, it's the, the BFI, the British Film, Film Institute's uh, label for odd and unusual British cinema. Um, basically, it's worth collecting all of them. Um, I, I have, have supported this uh, since it began. And it, they range from, yeah, almost unseen art movies like Herostratus to... Uh, cool uh, exploitation horror films like Psychomania. They've also done a bunch of uh, things like Joanna or Here We Come Around the Mulberry Bush, which fit into that swinging feel. Yes, I mean, w we've, we've put an awful lot of them on, the, on, this, on our night tube map. Uh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I mean, uh, including Death May Be Your Santa Claus, which yeah. is one of the ones that I, I most want to see. Yeah, it, again, it's not quite a film. It's it's a it's a born DVD extra. It's sort of interesting. Yeah, Kim, thank you very much. Thank you. And now, and now, well, after the Nightbirds uh, screening and the very uh, illuminating conversation that you had with Kim Newman, we felt inspired to go for a, a little derive, a little wander. A little, a little wander, another little wander, perambulation, perambulation of the East End. So this is a, a little bit of us wandering up to... Uh, In an attempt to find the, if not the mise-en-scene, at least the scene. 169 Commercial Road. So we, we know it's 169 because they make a bawdy joke about it in Nightbirds. Oh, what a dirty mind you have. 
What's the address? It's 169 Commercial Street. That's a gay number. What do you mean? You can explain that one to him when you get home. I don't know what you mean. Don't you, love? 161. Oh, it's this building. Look. Yeah. Except this doesn't have nearly as many stories. So, miraculously, assuming 169 Commercial Road is the real building where they filmed it, and... Oh. Yeah. But what there is, is the lovely frontage of a appropriately knackered and scabrous Victorian building that looks like well now it looks like a it's the last properly derelict Victorian building left on this street yeah isn't that wonderful and it, I don't think the interiors were shot in it because they're not no, it's, it's not this building no but but now from this vantage point 45 years later it's strangely apt. And yet, it's obviously somewhere near here because... Actually, I think it's no, I think it's further down. Yeah. So, tell us, how did you persuade people at the BFI to let you resurrect strange and ungodly films that some would say have been deservedly forgotten? <laughs> Well, it started, um, we have a regular um, slot called Projecting the Archive, where once a month uh, a film that we held in the collection had been screened for a long time, we'd get put on and there'd be an introduction and so on. <coughs> um, me and Vic had become friends working in the archive as curators here and then sort of one day realised that we were both fascinated by this film called Primitive London that neither of us had ever been able to see and got quite excited when we realised we had a copy of it in the archive. Um, and I'd read about it and seen it in the Art of the Nasty book and it's sort of first edition mm -hmm. when Mark Morris and Nigel Wingate put it out. And, it's and I'd read about it in the Tygon history, yes. the history of Tygon films that was around at that time. Yeah. And we were thinking, what a shame it is that we have these riches in the archive which have never really been reappraised, reinterpreted, brought out, recontextualised and seen and enjoyed again. Mm -hmm. And it sort of had footage of you know, mods being interviewed, Soho, strip clubs, the scene in, as it was in like 1965, so a little bit before Swinging London. Topless swimsuits. Topless swimsuits. So it all, you know, so it was quite tantalising. Chicken abattoir. So many things. So many wonders in this in this film. Um, uh, but so, uh, so, so we put it on in the Projects in the Archive slot and then that, that got a lot of attention. It's in Clare at like a full page in the, right. guide, in, the, in the Guardian Review, I think. And we got the event of the week in the Guardian. Yeah, and, uh, and um, Stanley Long, who was uh, he was the, the main cameraman on it and kind of went part of the creative force behind it. He, he sort of emerged from the woodwork and came along and spoke with us on stage. It was all quite exciting. It's very interesting to, to be a part of the BFI, which is you know, um, a cultural organisation, and to actually be in a position where we could start to re-examine these films that had been, at the time, derided. You know, they'd, be con they'd been considered just junk trash that no one would bother to even watch, let alone give a decent reviewed yeah so uh, this was, uh, and there was a bit this, of a turnaround and there was this kind of strange thing where we realized that you know the archive 
was trying to collect like a large amount, if not all, British feature film production, all sorts of different stuff, in the past international material as well, and had this very wide remit about what should be in the collection, but then the screening programme was like very specific and had like a few people who were, pick, who were picking things. So it's kind of like all this, you know, over the years, all this stuff has sort yeah. of come in, but like, well, where, like, yeah. what's happening with this? And like, other people were interested, but like, where's the platform? And so there was a bit of a like trying to begin to bridge those two worlds, and there's still loads of stuff in the archive. Yeah, I mean, it's partly because uh, film studies have a, a slight tendency to be canon about formation of a canon, and that canon is often fairly unexamined. The rules behind what becomes canon and what does not are, are fairly unexamined, and there's that, and there's the need to reevaluate that process. But there's also the simple fact that you've got an awful lot of social history, mm. an awful lot of first-hand evidence, which part of the job of film archive is to to give cultural historians something to bite on. And also, um, I mean, we're, con we're conducting this interview, very kindly being taken up onto the roof uh, BFI building um, uh, near New Oxford Street. And this whole area of London is kind of a magic space for not just films that have been sort of overlooked or a bit weird, but also for a whole forgotten history of light entertainment and very left field unusual entertainment as well, because you had, um, obviously the Scarlet Theatre was up on Charlotte Street, which is in, in, at the end of Hard Day's Night, yeah. but that became a Channel 4 building. When the Scarlet Film yeah. Club was set up, they did it in the basement as the building was um, still being prepared. But then you had all these magic shops around here as well. Mm. You had, and the, the remaining um, kind of imprint of that is the fact that Pollock's Toy Museum is still going. Yeah. Yeah. And David Bowie, when he was staying up here with his manager, he'd wander around all these back streets and he'd go to all the shops that sell vinyl just off New Oxford Street here um, and drink all that in. But then you also had things like Pollock's, you had the, the back then it would be kind of novelty shops, the shops selling magic tricks and turning to and and, 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 and joke, whoopee cushions. cushions yeah. Fake plastic turds. And often those shops were also the places where you go and rent 8mm uh, or Super 8 film. So all this part of um, the West End, this bit behind Oxford Street, on the edge of Bloomsbury, it's kind of, there's that famous Frank Lloyd uh, Wright quote about if you, if you turn America on its side, California is the world release bits would fall out. And there's almost a sense that if you tipped over a hundred years of cinema, or pop music, and musical, and light entertainment, and vaudeville, right here, I mean we're at the top of the building, but it's actually in these streets where it would all tip out. Well, I mean we're only, and I use the term advisedly, spitting different distance from the old St Giles Rookery, where, where the law went in threes or fours, because they were terrible, terrifying slums, where, where people would strip a single a single runner naked uh, and, 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 and send him out barefoot without his boots. And Soho Square and Soho are only just across the way. I mean, when, when you were putting together the, collect, the collection that's become Flipside, how much were you drawing on the fact that, that you work here, that you're based here? I think London and that kind of, you know, you you describe this like very dense, rich kind of psychographic imprint around this area in Central London. I think London is sort of sometimes consciously, sometimes not so consciously, but like featured extremely heavily. And I think you know things like Primitive London and those early Stanley Long films, and then 
like night birds that you screened last night. These, you know, these kind of different creative individuals in different places and people knowing and meeting other people. There's, you know, the, when you look at some, you know, the films that Flipside's done, but also other films, you know, there is this sort of potential like rock family tree linking all these people and places together. And I think there are a lot of connections and overlaps, and also by the accumulation of these titles, many of which have this London-centric basis, we're actually telling an untold story of the British cinema through these films yeah. in perhaps a new way which isn't about canon. Yeah, and, and films that didn't make the canon for not very good or, not, or obvious reasons, I mean like Privilege, mm. you know, a fascinating movie which critiqued the rock industry right back at its inception and said you think this is about liberation, it will be a form of oppression or will, can be used as that. Which of Watkins' films have made it into the canon? The war game for political reasons. His Col whole career is really fascinating, but still, even now, we only ever talk about basically Cologne and the war game. Yeah. And there's so, you know, he could, you know, um, the journey was like 14 hour episodic kind of follow up to the war game. Uh, the commune about a five hour film out of the French commune in 1870 from like about 10 years ago. I mean, there's no one really ever talks about these films, at least in this country. And also the uh, precursor of something like Privilege by Watkins would be Expresso Bongo, which yes. is Val Guest, another great filmmaker who's never really talked about. But again, a satire on that whole kind of youth movement and pop music and, business. And, and, and wonderful early work by Lawrence Harvey. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. But again, an actor who has slightly slipped out of view. When I was putting together the, the skull and map that we've done this year, this really fold-out nice. poster, so it's really nice. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah, so yeah, that's I good. just made sure I didn't talk over the top of you, so we caught you saying that on mic. Make sure you get that in there. <laughs> that's very kind of you. One of the things I found when I was trying to sort of look at connections between films and places in London, and then thinking, would the Scala have put this film on? It was interesting the number of, um, I think most of them got called um, uh, cop and pop films. So there's this sort of there's this transition from it, films like It's Trad Dad and Espresso Bongo and Beat Girl to films like uh, Dateline Diamonds and also uh, Live It Up, which has got all Joe Meeks bands in, which that one hasn't got a caper, there isn't like a crime going on as well as all the uh, bits of the bands performing, but they have lost the tape, they've lost the recording. So David Did Hem you come along when we showed that in one of the first I haven't seen it, I wish I had done that. You've not seen it? I've, not, I've oh. seen it but not like screened properly. Because um, we had Clem Cattini talking about working with Joe. Because you know, I mean, Joe Meat, another incredible London figure, Holloway Road, that whole Meeksville recording set up, you know, incredible stuff. And Live It Up, I think, really interesting because, you know, the great cast you've got there, early David Hemmings, early Steve Marriott in this film. And yes, probably the best and only record of the whole stable of Joe Meek artists there. It's interesting, the, the plot you describe is also like, uh, give my regards to Broad Street, the uh, somewhat larger budget, but also equally rarely remarks upon Paul McCartney's film from mm. the early 80s, which has a very thin storyline, but again, centers on the missing, the missing time. Master well, Day. I mean, catch us if you can with the Dave, Dave Clyde Five. Yeah, yes. yeah, another yeah, yeah. And I think if you look at those David Essex ones in the early which 70s. Which is John Foreman, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's John yeah. Foreman, yeah. Um, you know, that'll be the day in Stardust, you know, again, wow. fierce satires on the actual youth movement that's propelling David Essex to start him in the first place. 
But it's funny, you know, I know they have these kind of like mixed messages of sorts, like mm. being indulging and enjoying stuff, but at the same time sort of saying, you know, this is this is a bad way to go and there's you know, it's the classic exploitation thing where you like revel in it and yeah, you're you know, you're also warned yeah, against it. It's sort of the Mondo time. film prototype. It's yes. like you well, titillate I mean, but at the same time you say it's bad. Yeah. Yes, the, 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 in in uh, Kim Kim Newman's documentary about Flipside, there's that one wonderful wonderful bit of doctors explain that premarital sex inevitably leads to venereal disease. <laughs> and you go, Don't enjoy it too much, kids. <laughs> and you go, yes, that's somehow the mission statement for yeah. a lot of the, this sort of cinema. There's, there's two um, shots that seem to crop up in a lot of the films that I looked at putting the Scarlet Man together again. One is you see a lot of people uh, clambering around bomb sites or playing in bomb sites, kids playing in bomb sites, there's a lot of that. But people clambering around in bomb sites, which presumably were yeah, very, if you were making a film on a low budget, they were quite sort of filmic. Yeah. But also, there's a sense in which people are, in some cases, literally physically clambering onto all the rubble that's left over from the war to punch through all the glass ceilings above them. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the electric guitar's a way to amplify your signal. Uh, so, But weirdly, there's also that thing of what's change between now and then is if you're a low budget filmmaker it was a good way to shoot on the streets or on location and they had a bit of drama to it whereas now there's so much legislation in place to stop you doing that that almost these kind of post-war films are almost exploring that sort of public space like before it kind of gets mm -hmm. shut away and managed and commercialised so even at that kind of weird sort of visual record kind of type of engagement that they, they sort of they hold on to that as well I think that's interesting in like the films of the Children's Film Foundation, like uh, when you see the ones that are made just after the war into the 60s and 70s, kids were running about on wasteland. Yeah. Know, very, very fascinating how free children were to do things like this, you know, and a total turnaround, as well says, as things are built on, as things become regulated, as our idea of how adults and children should there was over, over a period of time a rewriting of childhood, mm. an extension of it uh, in, in age terms, where people talk of 14-year-olds 14, 14 as children, mm. whereas in, in the 50s and 60s nobody thought of 14-year-olds as, as children. Um, there, there's that weasel word youngsters. That one of the films I've found and put on the, scale, on the, the bigger map, not the one I've done for the night shoot, but where I've, I've tried to do the whole Beck map, which people haven't seen yet because I can't get the rights on TFL to do the Beck map. Though, if BFI would like to help. <laughs> um, so on, uh, down in, in, um, in East London, uh, near Barking, I've put this Children's Film Foundation film, One Wish Too Many, oh, right, that yeah. Magic Marble film. Yeah, so that's a kid gets Magic Marble, and with it he wishes basically to get a... Um, earth mover and then they just filmed all these houses being knocked over and it's like it's ma but the, the the really fascinating thing about that children's film foundation film is it starts off uh on the lansbury estate which was built as this i mean it's named after is it, uh, george lansbury george lansbury, george lansbury. George lansbury. uh yeah he's uh, so <laughs> what is the uncle of all of the post game and the uncle of angela lansbury I think so. Well, I think so. Yeah. Um, a but so, but but Lansbury is a kind of modernizer, and then the Lansbury estate named after him as the hope after the war wow. that people would have yeah. fit homes, that public housing would provide for working class people in the East End. And then you've got this, and I'm sure a lot of the reason, like we're saying, they shot a load of houses being knocked over, was because 
they were demolishing houses, they had a film camera. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the main thing about Trans Film Foundation is it's all shot on location because they had no budget to go into a studio. So basically they shot it on the streets and now we see that as a strength rather than a weakness. But at the time, it was considered what you did because you didn't have the money to rent the studio space. It's funny, like, um, I start counting and then also all the right noises, all the what you described becomes like a total backdrop to the sort of narrative situation. So old houses being knocked down with a kind of mixture of bad memories, but then also kind of nostalgic for childhood yeah. and quite complex. And I think that's why the fun horror film begins then as well. Yeah. 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 Lots, of shooting, lots of shooting in Epping Forest. Yeah. And yeah, yeah that, that, that scene in all the right noises. Mm. Yeah. And there's that, there's that amazing long shot in uh, Death May Be With Santa Claus of the Virgin Mary running down the street in slow motion towards yeah. this squat where a prog rock group is, is performing. That's quite an amazing picture of that? London. I mean, it just really. There are some films like in that scene particularly where it just looks like it's sort of like I don't know, a, sort of uh, a, a, like a decayed sort of apocalyptic town. Just London in a way that you just can't imagine it now. And it's a bit like that in Nightbirds as well. I mean, it just looks it yeah. just looks like a shell. It looks like it is still. You know, the war happened like two years ago or last month or something. But. Yeah. Uh, we may be, it's possible the director of Death Maybe or Santa Claus, Frankie Diamond Jr., may be coming over next year. So we might, so we might do something with him and next. So I've anyway, become obsessed. Anything we can do as Resonance FM to publicise that or just draw more attention, not only to his film, but his albums. It's such, it, it, the thing I, I've become so quite enraptured about with his music is that he's one of those great English eccentric voices like Betjeman, like Vivian Stanshaw, and then you stop and think, and he made the only black power film. Yeah, it's quite incredible. And then he's in One Plus One, the Goddard film as well, sort of with building machine guns and you know, preparing for the revolution by the Thames. Well, I mean, the apocalyptic strain is so much, coming back to that point. Yeah. Um, it was it was London that a, a, a whole generation of which I was part grew up in. You know, there were things that had been blown up ten years earlier and not replaced. Yeah. There was growth of, of, of that that fire herb that bombed, grew grew off on bomb sites. And when people ask why is there that an apocalyptic strain in David Bowie, mm. it's because you know. He grew up, yeah, surrounded by it. And it's weird now. On certain bus routes, you know, you'll, if you sit on the upper deck, you occasionally peer over walls and fences, and you just see in there it probably was a bomb site, but it's kind of been tidied up a bit. You'll just see sort of ferns and you know just some greenery, but you can still occasionally, you know, there are still mm. plots. They're just hidden from ordinary view now. Yes, I mean, uh, <coughs> well, I mean, uh, Hagston Park was where there was a gas. You know, there was a a spur of the canal with another gasworks, which went up one one dark night, and they've completely healed it over. Except they've actually marked where the where the where the canal spur was. Um, if you walk along the canal, you, you know you sit, you know, the, the, under one of the bridges in Bethnal Green. It says this is where the first B one hit. And the, the area just above King's Cross is still quite, quite strong. I mean, that's will be redeveloped, but that's quite a kind of weird, sort of barren area. 
This is the daring, titillating inside story of primitive London. Behind the bright lights, in the undergrowth of alleyways, lies the jungle of primitive London. Here, life and people are different. The beat is offbeat. In a city like London, you have to look hard for evidence of sentimentality, but it is there. We are a civilized people, they will say, and they'll be insulted to be reminded that they are also animals. The funny thing about seeing, you know, seeing these films very well presented is that one level you might think, oh, well, you know, previously you may have seen them in sort of quite worn prints, or you've lost a bit of the character of the film, but at the same time, I think part of this thing about canon formation is that the films that are established and well known often get revisited, you know, restored, or you know, there's more, maybe they're more widely circulated, there's better prints available, and so when you look at these more out of the way films, often there's, you're not seeing them well presented, and that does affect, you know, that can very affect your experience quite considerably. So to actually show these films and present them well, you start to, just even having a very different visual experience mm -hmm. can really change about how you start to think about them. Well, it's and even in quite unconsciously, I think. Because, you know, it's, it makes them look like they respect themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think from to London, some of the dancing sequence, I mean, that was, that was um, I think they made from the negative, they actually could be the ones in the Blu-ray, and it's, you know, it's actually really well shot, and that's the funny thing. Sometimes you think of cult movies or forgotten movies being maybe not so well made, but they have other qualities that you enjoy, but not frequently they actually are extremely well made. And from to London is a really well shot film and Stanley Long is a really excellent cameraman. It looks really good and you can see that when you watch well, watch the Blu-ray. One of the one of the things about Andy Milligan, who's not a good director and certainly not a good well, director. Maybe not very a, a very interesting camera work. Absolutely. Yeah, there's in in Nightbirds. In Nightbirds. Also in, in his, his New York short, Playfuls. Yes. He looked as though he died on stage in a play. With all that tasty makeup they put on his face. They stuffed so much cotton in his face. His face was all full and distorted. He always had such good structure, like yours. Christ, Mary, what's sense in here? So you're the one who's wearing it. Ugh. It's lying, couch sheets. Don't you know, can you stop? Yeah. Lovely. Well, I think Nightbirds is really good because he, you have the cat, the customary sort of twirl when he yeah. goes around with the camera, but he manages to rein it in. Yeah. I think in Nightbirds he doesn't overdo it. You know, there's a couple of yeah. things about Nightbirds that are different to his other films. Um, in that, uh, there's a lot less dialogue, right? Yes. So there's more room for his camera to actually follow action without necessarily having to jam in loads of lines, you know, he could actually show us things. And it's quite, well, it's quite well punctuated, like you have like a little yeah. kind of episode of discussion and then there's a cut to quite a different angle. And it, in terms of I like, film, one of the terms of like filming space, it's quite weird because you're kind of moving around, but at the same time you know it's a room, so you're not, yeah. you know, it's, it's fine. It and then it moves to like another not. episode. And it it's works really... I'm really struck by that with this one because you yeah. know, if you see some of the other ones, you know, the camera's spinning, 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 <laughs> everyone's doing so much dialogue. You yeah. know, I, I think it sort of limits the effectiveness and when he reigns it, it in, 
I think there's more close-ups in it as well. That's so sort of, it yeah. feels much more intimate, and you feel more involved. It's a combination mm. of all the mm. things that mm. you've just yeah. described. But you know, my two favourites are his, the two British ones the, that we have on that DVD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The body beneath. Yeah, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd probably say Nightbirds. I would say is probably the best one of his films I've seen in terms of script and direction yeah. and editing. But I'd say Body Beneath is the one I enjoy the most. You know, so Nightbirds, the best made, Body Beneath, the one that's the most fun, I think, and the one that looks the most beautiful. Because mm -hmm. there's um, a scene that me and William always talk about where there's a kind of vampire's feast going on. Yes, one night, it's kind of like, Which is the most incredible thing. And uh, in the print we were originally looking at, which was a bit damaged, all the colours had started to bleed out from the frame, and it gave it an incredible psychedelic quality, which was quite something to see. Very much at the moment. Yeah, but it looks so beautiful now, you know, I mean, it's, uh, and part of it was because of this slight decay on the film print. So, what do you want to do next with, with Flipside and Allied Projects? Well, this Wednesday, <laughs> that's good. This Wednesday, we're um, introducing Nicky Henson. Woo! At BFI Southbank, who's the star of Psychomania. We're showing the new, remastered, restored Psychomania, the ultimate British undead zombie biker flick of all time. Right. You know, as everyone knows, right? And. Uh, no, tell us more. <laughs> <laughs> also starring George Sanders. In his last role. In his last role. Um, Beryl Reed, the wonderful Beryl Reed, um, and Michelle out of uh, House of Whipcord. Uh, it's quite a great. Oh, Bill Pertwee out of Dad's Army, he's in it. This is quite something. It's kind of like an early 70s uh, biker movie shot around Walton on Thames. Because uh, I guess in the States you could do Easy Rider and all the bikes could go out across the desert. In England, if you were doing a biker movie, you'd go to the shopping centre of Walton on Thames. And uh, this is this a is spiritual desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you drive around a field and do lots of jumps. Tell us about that. Well, well there's some key scenes in a, of a stone circle on the edge of Walton on Thames, and they they there are many. It's very stylishly shot. Again, you know, it's the seven it's witches. I the seven sure. witches stone circle, which you know, foregrounds what's to come. But it's that's another film that's it's really you know it's really fun. I think people who make it didn't quite know, or maybe reviewers didn't know whether to take it entirely seriously or not. I think you know, I'll leave that up to the viewer. But uh, directed by Don Sharp. But Don Sharp is—he uh, he does really good work on it. I mean, it's you know, but even like the action socks and the stunts, they kind of the camera moves, and they're, they're, he's really thinking about how to kind of involve the viewer and work with expectations. Very snappy. It's a snappy, snappy film, and looks really great and colourful as well. So, and looks will look great on the big screen. So, so any prospect of that appearing on, on the Blu-ray? That is indeed, that in, is in later in the month. Woo! So in, in about a few weeks, people will be able to buy the DVD Blu-ray joint release with some unusual extras as well. So, um, such as? Such as Roger Wonders Why, which is a um, Christian youth club promotion film from, uh, from Colchester, I believe, um, about some... Uh, some young guys who um, are at an after-church club and then get taken across to London on a motorbike to visit the 59 Club, where Reverend Bill Shergold runs a kind of biking club for churchgoers, but not just churchgoers, also rockers and whoever wants to turn up. And, they, and later on they go 
rock climbing and read Boy Scouts and all sorts of things. It's there's also a unusual item. There's also a John Betjeman film on this on this release as well. We were talking about John Betjeman, one of the great British eccentrics. Yes. Um, one of his Discovering Britain series, where he visited, visits the Avery Stone Circle in 1955. So we're going on a bit of a Stone Circle theme on the Psychomania release right. as well. And I should say it's all been, Psychomania has been restored in 2K from the original three strip separation Technicolor negatives. Now this is the first time this has ever been done. Our colleague here, Doug Weir, who works in the technical department, has done an amazing job on this. And uh, Psychomania now looks and sounds better than it ever has before. You know, I saw it on TV in the 1980s. That was the first time I saw it at about one in the morning on ITV. Um, and in those days, they used to show a kind of cropped tape from a 16 mil print. Now we've actually used the 35 millimeter material for the first time to really restore and remaster this film, and I think it looks and sounds brilliant. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations yeah. on that. You're, you're doing the Lord's own work, possibly the Lord of Darkness's own yeah. work. Yes. <laughs> that is George Sanders, in fact. Yeah. Yes. Because he knows the secret of the locked room. Aha. <laughs> and you may too if you watch the film. And what else? Well, Anything we're hoping. Anything more <laughs> <the sky> coming? <laughs> Well, we have plans and ideas for the future, but we'll have to sort of see how things go and how, how the screening and the release goes, but uh, I think that's probably as much as we can say at the moment. But there are plans. There are plans. There's certainly in the, sort of the body of work that you've put together with the, the flip side DVDs and Blu-rays, particularly the quality of the restorations, yeah. but also the extras, they're, they're marvellous things and, you know, people collect all of them and I do too, and, and cheers for doing it. I mean, well, nice to have the bed sitting room back. Yeah, well, well thank you. And, you know, Sam Dyer, who heads up the DVD department, has really, yeah. you know, worked supremely hard on, on the Flipside series, and it was great working with him to, you know, together at the very beginning and getting it on the road. Yeah, it was very much Sam and Will and me getting this all together in the first place. Yeah. Uh, back in 2008. Our first first was, well, it's Primitive London, I think. Was it 2007? Our first in 2007, we showed it. In 2008, it came out, I think. Yeah, so it's nearly 10 years ago mm. we did our first. And there's still work to be done. Yeah. Well, there's still much more to discover, that's mm. the thing. Yeah. And every one of these things that you bring out, they're, they're uh, very much anticipated, and I think they're, they're greeted with great warmth um, because quite clearly put a great deal of yeah. attention to detail as well as love in them. You've, you've, you've won people's trust. Oh well, thank you. Well, that's good. We like, I think we like to think of ourselves as enthusiasts, although we work at the BFI and people might have a picture yeah. or association with the BFI, I think as, as people want to get them friends, we think of ourselves as enthusiasts. So. Yeah, and um, you know, we like to get under the surface of this thing. Well, that was Will Fowler and Vic Pratt from BFI. And Flipside. This has been Music for Films on ResonanceFM.com and ResonanceFM 104.4 in London. It's a Beekeepers production, and you can also find extended versions of all of our shows on thebeekeepers, or one word, dot com.